Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at NortheastScene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. When you have sex with a woman, be gentle and listen to her. Treat her with respect and dignity, even if you don't love her. I know. Always tell the truth. Always take the high road. I know. Live each day like it could be your last. Drink it in. Be adventurous, be bold, but savor it. Goes fast. I know. Don't die. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. And we're back, and we are happy to bring you another installment of this podcast. And tonight, on the show, none other than Steve Austin, recording mastermind and frontman and mastermind behind Today is the Day. There's going to be some good, good conversation coming out of that. I can feel it already. And, uh, oh, special thanks to Casey Iodine of Iodine Recordings for hooking up the conversation with Steve. And, Tommy, did you see Iodine's back? They're yeah, signing dude. new bands. Like, they're, they're back, back. They just signed uh, Audio Karate. It's like a West Coast pop-punk emo-type band. I was listening to it earlier today. Good stuff. Good summertime music. I love it. I love that they're back. I love they were a great fucking record company back in the day. And the fact that they're re-releasing older things and signing new music is, is fucking amazing. Yes. So thank you, Casey. And today is the day, Tommy, that we talk to today is the day. <laughs> today is the day <laughs> that we talk to today. I love it. Steve Austin is like one of those dudes that like is just fucking he's the real deal. Like he's lived it for the last 30 years and he just doesn't give a fuck about what other people think. He puts out what he loves and he makes music and doesn't compromise for anybody. I, 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 I love his ethos with a lot of this stuff and it's just, he's a fucking great dude and I can't wait to talk to him. Oh yeah. It's going to be good. I mean, in addition to today is the day who've put out so much good stuff. He's just recorded so much good stuff and we're going to get into all that, but, um, Tommy is sick. Yes, so it was weird. Uh, I guess it all started right around Saturday night, Friday night, Saturday morning. Uh, baby started with a runny nose. Didn't think much of it. She woke up the next day. Totally fine. My wife and I started kind of with like runny noses, but nothing really bad. Uh, and over the last couple days, it's gotten pretty bad to the point where it's like, I actually went to urgent care today and and they put me on amoxicillin and uh a steroid so you don't need any more steroids tommy 
<laughs> You're jacked. I, I, I was gonna. I, I was waiting for that. As soon as I said the word steroid, <laughs> in my head, I was like, "Use the word prednisone. Say prednisone. Maybe he won't know that's a steroid." Like, <laughs> you give me an opening, I'm gonna latch onto it like, like a hungry dog. <laughs> so, no, but yeah. you don't. You don't sound that bad. Tommy texted me, and he's like, "Oh, my voice is shot. I thought I was gonna have to do the show alone." And that's a scary thought, but you don't sound so bad. No, I actually, the throughout the day, I've been actually feeling a lot better, and I've been drinking a ton of water. I mean, it's not hard because it's 100 degrees outside, but uh, I've been drinking a ton of water and just really doing well with, like, keeping my voice to a minimum and kind of, like, not using it unless I have to yell at the kids, so. Now, that's got to be incredibly difficult for you. Uh, it hasn't been because I have been doing a fair amount of work on my computer, no, get uh, it? Because you love to talk all the time. Oh, you know? No, I know. Cause, but I'm, I'm not <laughs> around other people, though. Like, I've been doing work on my computer when the kids are kind of occupied. Um, yeah. So I've, I've taken up a couple kids in the summer, like, uh, tutoring. So uh, I kind of have to, like, just make plans for them of, like, what they're going to do and when they're going to do it and stuff like that. I see. Yeah. Well, we wish you a speedy recovery, and we are happy that you are pushing through this to be with us here again on the Northeast Scene podcast. And folks, it's a ticking time bomb right now. It's 95 degrees out right now or something. And I'm sitting in my apartment with the windows closed and the air conditioner off so that we can have the finest sound quality for the podcast. And the temperature is just slowly rising with each passing second. And I'm in my basement that doesn't have air conditioning either. (laughs) <laughs> so it's a, it's a it's a solid 84 degrees down here. <laughs> this is a this is a labor of love, let me tell you. <laughs> so uh in some music news, did you read that uh Brendan McGuire of Bane passed? Yeah, Stu, right? Yeah, Stu yeah. passed. Away. That is uh that is really sad news. Our condolences to his bandmates and families and friends. Bane was a very important band in hardcore to me and many other people i think of being i instantly think of the can we start again song and the incredible sing-alongs that would take place at their shows yeah i uh there's just something that stuck out for me i actually listened to the record uh it all comes down to this the like uh when i got the news i was like oh let me go put that on because i have you know i have a cd player in my car because my car's old as shit so um i listened to uh there's a great song on there. I think it's the second song. And it's called fuck what you heard. There's an amazing two-step part. If you really like listen to it, there is a baseline in there that is fucking unbelievable. It starts at like a minute and 20 seconds. And I literally just rewound it like a hundred times. <laughs> I was just driving around <laughs> listening to the same like 40 seconds of audio. <laughs> yeah, it's a good band and it's a, it's a real shame. And did you read, um, Mark Hoppus from Blink-182 battling cancer. I heard about that. I actually didn't really hear about it. Somebody sent me, uh, I think it was, maybe it was Chuck Moran, sent me a picture and it was Mark Hoppus sit, like sitting in a chair and all it said was, one cancer treatment, please. I guess this is something he posted on um, his TikTok or something he posted on Instagram. And I was like, oh shit, like that guy always, they always seem like such a fun group of dudes. Like they kind of seem like childish and sophomoric, but it's always like in good fun. And whenever you hear anything like that happening to somebody who's been, you know, he's always been a good natured, like funny kind of guy. And it's like, you know, uh, it's devastating to hear that. But at the same time, you know, uh, 
as it comes out a little bit more, I get, hopefully we'll find out what, you know, what the prognosis looks like and, you know, how serious it really is. Yeah, I hope he's, I really hope he's going to be okay. Blink-182, another great band. I just, it just, uh, like, it just makes me think, you just never know what's going to happen. I mean, all these people that knew Stu McGuire were posting online, you know, we thought we were going to see him at this benefit show that's happening this Friday with Bouncing Souls and some other bands, and I don't know, man, just one day to the next. Yeah, you could be sick, you could be dead, you you just never know what's going to happen. It's it's actually uh, really sad. I saw the the guy who lives like not directly across the street from me, but like two houses over. Um, he was walking probably like right when the pandemic started. Remember, he was out walking, and I saw him, and I said, "Oh, hey, how you doing?" And you know, he was like, "Oh, you know, I've been better." And I was like, "What's the matter? What's going on?" And uh, keep in mind, we only explain, you know, we exchange pleasantries when we speak. We don't really have like in depth conversations. He's like. Uh, I just got back from the doctors a couple days ago and, uh, I'm going to have to start, uh, cancer treatment. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry to hear that. Let me know if you need anything. If you need me to do anything around the house, like mow the lawn, take the garbage out. I got you. Don't worry about it. And he was like, yeah, it's just, uh, I'm going to go in for another opinion. And, uh, he's like, but it's, uh, you know, it's pancreatic cancer. So I don't really. And as soon as he said that, I went, oh no. Cause that's a bad one, right? That's what my father died from. My father oh. died in my father died in 1987. Keep in mind, it's also what killed Alex Trebek. Right. So once you get that diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, the biggest problem with most of the time, and this is my understanding, keep in mind, let's put the caveat in here. I'm not a doctor. This is not medical advice. Yes, but, Tommy might pretend to be a doctor sometimes, <laughs> but he is not, folks. He is not. But continue. The biggest problem with pancreatic cancer is, is that people don't have uh, initial symptoms. So by the time they, they have discovered that their pancreas is the problem, it's usually what they call metastatic, meaning it's spread to other portions of their body. So as much as they can treat the pancreatic cancer, um, uh, one of the main issues with my father's was that it had already spread to his lungs and his liver. Um, and you know, my neighbor, I said, you know, I, I, whatever you need from me, I said, you know, uh, my father dealt with this. I know how serious it is. And he actually said, and it was really kind of like kind of sobering to me. Um, but he looked at me and he goes, well, you know, they gave me about, like they said, based on where they caught it, they'll give me about two years. Oof. And now I, Keep in mind, again, like you said, you never know what life's going to throw you. My wife and I were washing dishes tonight, like, and I'm not exaggerating, 15 minutes ago, right before we got on, and um, they're delivering a hospital bed to the house. Oh, no. And I was just like, I actually got choked up. Like, I'm, like, I got real upset. And my wife was like, because you just don't. You go from one minute to the next. You just don't know what life's going to give you. And it's just like, um, gives you a really important reminder to like, one, tell the people around you, you love them. Um, and, you know, take every day for what it is because man, you fucking, like I talked to that guy last week and, you know, now he's on hospice in his fucking house, bro. Like it's, it's fucking nuts. Yeah, I'm I'm emotional and I don't even know the guy. When you said that, my heart sank and I'm sure it brings up 
a lot of old feelings. Oh yeah. No, that's why I'm, I mean, that's the thing is, is like the first thing my wife said to me was like, she like put her hand on my arm and she was like, well, at least his kids are grown. Cause his kids are like, they're out of college. You know, they have careers and everything like that. You know, they got to spend time with him. They know that this was a, you know, very serious diagnosis. So like his, you know, one of his kids has moved back into the house to help out and is working remotely. And it's like, it's really nice to know that you have people around you that, that really do care about you. But um, it's unfortunate that sometimes it takes something as serious as that to bring people back together. You know? It really is. So we got to use the time we have wisely. For sure. And that's it. Fuck, I didn't know we were going to get like real serious in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I didn't either, but it always comes when you least expect it. But I think this is good stuff to talk about. Oh, yeah. no, I think this is important stuff to talk about. You know, it's uh, it's funny that you, you bring, like mentioned like it, it brings up old feelings. When I, we were leaving the Poconos um, for Father's Day weekend, we stopped on the way home and stopped uh, where my father's buried. And, uh, you know, my wife's always like, I'll come out with you. You know, we'll do it. And I'm like, I, I don't know how anybody else does this, but I have always done that as a it's been a solitary act i go out by myself yeah i i haven't been to my brother's grave since 2008 maybe i could never go there with somebody else not even my own family and this is i you don't have to answer this but when when you go do you talk to them last time i went i did yes yeah i have a full-on conversation (laughs) like it's like somebody from a distance would be like you know obviously uh given the circumstance and the surroundings they'd be like oh this guy's having a moment but uh you know it is literally like me i just sit down on the ground usually and just uh have a full like just tell them about my life so yeah it's, again it comes back to that thing like if you have people around you that you don't you know maybe you have beef with or whatever it is like hug those close to you and and uh make sure they know that you love them because you have no idea what tomorrow's going to bring. Like it, it can be that serious. Like the next day you get a diagnosis. It's fucking crazy, man. All right. So now we're going to speak to Steve Austin. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Steve Austin. Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here. How are you doing today? Um, today has been a pretty good day. It's been a lazy day because, uh, I've been working like crazy and, um, it wasn't really planned, but I decided today I was going to do what I wanted to do. So I guess it's been a pretty good day. That's good. What do you do when you unwind? Um, well, my unwinding today probably sounded like I was still working, but, um, I, um, you know, usually when I'm trying to like have some fun and so forth, I'll either like hop in the Jeep and climb a mountain or go rock crawling or, um, go down to, we have a little cabin spot on a lake and I'll go down there with my wife and hang out down there. Um, you know, it's nothing really too crazy or exciting. I got a border collie named Abby and, uh, me and her, you know, we'll take off on adventures on long walks and stuff like that, you know? No, that's nice. It's it's great to get outside more. I'm trying to do that myself because all of my hobbies involve sitting in front of screens. So even if it's just to like get outside and sit on a bench for half an hour, I, I make sure I do that. Yeah, no, I, I, I live in Maine, like up in the northeastern uh, sector of that. And so 
Uh, we're pretty far out there, and we we have a little place that's you know surrounded by trees with no neighbors or anything. And um, you know, usually during the day, like you're saying, um, I'll be in the house in the studio or office working on computer nonstop and bleeding my brain out. And so whenever I you know finally can get a moment to just you know do something, I, I usually try to get the hell out of here. Yeah, that's nice. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Tennessee in a town called Lebanon. And um, I was born in actually Gross Point, Michigan. My my pop was a, a automotive worker that worked for Chrysler. And uh, Chrysler had a different division down in Tennessee. So we moved quite a bit from uh, my early, like, under 10 years old days. But then... Probably around about the age of like nine or ten, we moved back down to Tennessee and stayed down there. And uh, I lived there from then, all you know, through high school and early college and stuff like that. Nice. How was it there? Was it like your classic suburban kind of upbringing, or? Uh, no, I'm a country kid. You know, uh, we we lived five miles outside the city, and the city wasn't really a very big city uh, at all. It was a small town. And, um, you know, so for me, like chasing snakes, uh, and grabbing them out in the woods and, uh, hip, hip hopping across snapping turtles in a Creek, you know, the, the usual crazy stuff that you do when you're a kid on a mini farm outside of the city. Yeah, that's nice. I, I miss that. I've lived in cities, I guess, since 2003 now, but in my youth, you know, it was typical suburban, uh, walking across a frozen creek, making a ford in the woods, finding creatures out in the woods, like all that good stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I, I myself just connect more with that. I've lived in the city and I've lived, uh, you know, a way out as well. And before we before we moved up to Maine, we we actually my wife and family, we moved back down to Tennessee and uh, I opened up a studio there in Nashville and our house wasn't right smack dab in the center in Nashville, but it was on the outskirts outskirts of Nashville. And even that, just, you know, having a neighbor across the fence on each side and all this stuff, that just, it just was very uncomfortable to me. I, I, I like privacy and I like to be able to do my own thing, you know, at my pad. Um, if you want, you can walk out the door and either, you know, pee in the backyard or shoot a shotgun <laughs> off the porch, uh, <laughs> or, uh, you know, you can do whatever you want to. And, um, you know, same, same thing with this whole area up here, you know, it, it's a, it's a sense of peace and tranquility. And I really dig it for that reason. I was going to say, I've seen a lot of resurgence in that, in people that are really trying to be more self-sufficient, like, that idea of like, I, I can do this on my own and I, I don't need to have other people interfering with that. Do you really like that solitude? I do. And in fact, I wouldn't call myself a survivalist, but I'll call myself a survivalist. Like uh, we, you know, like for instance, at our house, our house is heated with a wood stove and there's no other heating source. Um, there's a big old, uh, super sick, uh, stove called a Hearthstone H1 that was made in the early seventies by these freaking stoners from New Hampshire that made this like, uh, looks like it would almost be in the Adams family house mansion or something like this crazy big stove. And, um, so every year, like we buy, uh, six cords of wood 
and we heat the house with that. Um, we cook our food with propane through a, a normal, pro, like a, a gas range, I guess is what you call it and whatnot. And, um, you know, I go hunting and so forth every single year. I usually uh, get a deer or my son gets a deer. And um, I tell you, throughout times, sometimes when times have been tough or times have been hard, um, all this stuff like added up to survival and being able to make it and do it, you know. And um, I, I, I just, you know, I one good thing about us out here is, as opposed to like if you were in the city, you know, we've got a generator. If the power goes out, we always have electricity. If the power goes out, we always have heat. If the power goes out, we've always got water because we have well water. Um, you know, so overall, like, uh, I guess I live somewhat of a primitive, uh, lifestyle. I actually, you know, it's really funny, Steve. So my wife is from the Pocono mountains and I went to go visit her when we just started dating and there was a really bad thunderstorm in the summertime and the power never went out. The water never stopped. They cooked on top of, they have actually, uh, they actually have one of those. I'm sure you're familiar with it. They have one of those pellet stoves. Yeah. Uh, they had an old regular, um, like one that was like built up on big, like huge bricks in, in the middle of the living room. Mm-hmm. Um, but it like pumped out heat and they literally would have coal delivered every, you know, every uh, like October or so. And they would have this huge truck come in and dump coal and they would have a coal chute out back and you would shovel the coal into the coal chute. And it was like, I felt like I was like, you know, on uh, it, it felt very like, uh, like Grizzly house Adams. On the prairie. Or, yeah. yeah. I was, and it's funny that you said Little House on the Prairie because I was thinking that too. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's exactly like that here. Like meaning a truck comes that's a, a buddy of mine named Ed and um, he comes out here and pours what looks like a mountain of wood because six cords of wood is a ton of wood. I don't need it's it's, you know, over a thousand logs or whatever. And, um, you know, so we have to load all that stuff in the barn. And um, and then basically, you know, I mean, there's a work to it, uh, doing it because during the wintertime inside the house, we only keep like so much wood. So, you know, we, when you start running low, you got to make trips back and out, back and forth out to the barn. But I myself have been to like uh, health and like physical fitness stuff a little bit. It, not, not crazy, you know, um, but uh, but, you know, but, but I enjoy all that stuff. Like when the dude jumps the wood, uh, jump, drops off the wood, I'll be out there looking at it going like, Jesus Christ, like I'm never going to get all this stuff like put in the barn and you know, but, uh, you know, it's a workout and you go out there and you lug that wood, put it away and everything. And, um, you know, it, like you were saying about the heat too, like when we first moved up here and we knew that we were going to be going ultra primitive like that, um, I looked into it cause like they had a medium size like stove in here and it was a cast iron one. And so I started doing some research on people who have lived by like fire for like a long time. And so Nordic people and so forth from, you know, uh, Norway and Sweden area, Switzerland, a lot of them had uh, stoves that were made out of soapstone. And soapstone is really cool because uh, soapstones created, you know, a million years ago. It's in, in the earth and whatnot. And basically cave people and, and people after that would use soapstone because it absorbs heat. And when it puts out its heat, it's not so much an infrared type of heat that's blaring. It's more of like a really soothing 
um, con- convection type of heat and so forth. So if you're yeah, going like to rate, it like radiates. Yeah. If you go to bed at night and you load up the stove and let's say your fire goes out at like two o'clock in the morning and it's zero degrees or minus 10 up here in Maine, um, that stove will keep throwing down for like another like six to eight hours of, you know, real nice warm heat. So, um, I just dig it. You know, it, it, it makes it makes my life be more about freedom and me doing my own thing and what I want to do. And I don't really have to, like, worry about, like, conforming to society or anything, like, really close by. I always appreciate that. And reading a lot about you, Steve, it just seems like that seems kind of your ethos. You just do what you do and you do it your way. And that's it. That's pretty much it, man. I think everybody needs to let their freak flag fly and and follow their dream and follow their heart about like what they want to do. I mean, I um, you know, when I got out of high school, um, there was half of me that wanted to play music really, really bad, and then and then the other half of me was trying to be somewhat sensible, and you know, because I had a good academic career and whatnot in high school. I, you know, I went off to college. I went to university of Missouri and, um, you know, I realized after being there for a couple of years that I just wasn't happy doing it. And I talked to my folks and I thought they were going to be like, you know, you're out of your mind. You're throwing this away. You're crazy. And instead they were like, you know, we wondered when you were finally going to come to this realization (laughs) What were you gonna? What were you thinking of doing besides music? What were you studying? I was actually studying music and finance. Yeah, music and finance. Yeah, double major in music and finance because I I knew that I wanted to be involved in music, work with music, but I also trying to find a place within it in the biz, like getting a business degree that finance would be probably a good idea to uh, learn on it and so forth. So. But uh, I was glad when I made the move because after that, I pretty much was a man on a mission about, okay, so we've just thrown our life away. Um, now, what Now what are we going to do here? And so I just started, you know, trying to find the right people to play music with. And the first thing I did was I got me a job at a Greek restaurant and uh, I worked every hour that I could and saved money so that I could buy equipment like guitars and um amp and PA and things like that. And um, it took me a a little bit of travel. I went back and forth from down in Tennessee up to to Michigan and then back down to Tennessee again. But eventually, um, on on the last trip down to Tennessee, I found uh, the right guys to get the band started with. And then from there, uh, just kept going. Had you been in bands prior to this whole experience of trying to put it all together? Yeah, I had. Um, the very first band I was in when I was like a young kid and so forth was called Conspiracy. And then um, and then the next one after that uh, was called Scratch. And then, uh, and then the one that was right before Today is the Day that had the drummer that was in Today is the Day, Brad Elrod, that one was called Alien and the Land of Our Birth. And um, Alien, the Land of Our Birth, was a avant-garde art, sci-fi, metal, fantasy, rock. It, it, it was pretty freaked out and pretty crazy and whatnot. Um, I enjoyed doing it and so forth. But eventually, when that band kind of 
uh, dissolve with different people going their different ways. Uh, you know, me and Brad stuck together there. And then, um, and then I started Today is the Day. So what types of bands influenced Today is the Day? What were you into at the time? Um, you know, I like... I liked all kinds of music, but like I was really moved by like progressive rock and also like, you know, a hardcore like Chromags, like Agnostic Front, like uh, Sick of It All. And then in the metal world, I really loved like the band Death and um, Morbid Angel, Napalm Death, um, you know, and and then on like a gothic end of things, like I really loved like Bauhaus and stuff like that. And so I, I I never really fit in because of that as far as musically, because most people seem to target one genre and wear it on their sleeve. But I was always determined to keep my mind open and just be into whatever I, I like. So, you know, as it went on, like bands like Pink Floyd and King Crimson became even more of an important thing to me because they were they were musics that I could connect with and understand. Yeah, that there's a good variety there. That makes sense. And I I also think it's great when people make a choice and really follow their passion because you know, when I was younger, I was always torn between like do I go to college? Do I do music? How do I do music? But you made the choice. You're like this is what I'm going to do and you put in a lot of footwork to make it happen. Driving back and forth to Tennessee, saving the money, like you just made the decision and you got it done. Well, thank you. You know, I, I tell you, I, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world at times because of everything and the way that it's worked out. I mean, I'm definitely a cult underground musician as far as it's not like we are, uh, you know, following up our Black album right now or anything uh, <laughs> with with my millions of dollars falling out of my pockets. But the things <laughs> that make life the most special which is having somebody to love, having um, two kids that I am extremely uh, proud of that are two great young men named Hank and Willie, you know, and the life that we've carved out. It's like, I feel like that in a world of like crazy, like pop culture, Britney Spears with her head hair shaved off and uh, the the whole entire world just gone mad and, and so forth. It's like within our little family, we've, um, we've, we, I feel like we've got a really beautiful thing. And with me having the freedom to do my own thing, um, you know, my wife has always been like super supportive of me with, with everything that I do. And, um, I've just never, ever really felt creatively or artistically stifled. Yeah, that's great. And, um, in the early days of, of today is the day, did you ever, did you have like big aspirations where you like, I want to be a, a big band or were you just always like, no, we're going to do our thing. We're going to tour and we're going to do what we're doing. I think it was the last thing that you said, because I, 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 you know, obviously it's nice to have people respond to your music and, and care about it and put it in their heart. And that, that for me is what's the most important part about doing it. And hopefully the music bringing a message to people, because I, I had a really, um, in a lot of ways, besides the beauty of the countryside and all that in Tennessee, I had a really, uh, disturbing, uh, youth as far as being a young kid and so forth, just a lot of damaging, insane things. And, uh, and so I feel like that also because of the weirdo that, that I am, 
that as I got to be an adult, I realized that I just don't fit in. And, and I feel like, uh, you know, I, I feel like I had a lot of problems with depression that, that still sometimes is on going on. And so today's day kind of became a thing for me where I'm making music to heal myself and I'm hopefully making music to give inspiration to and heal other people. And so, you know, I, I think you could be the richest man in the world with all kinds of money piled up all the, w- the way around you. But to me, I feel like the richest man in the world because I have the love and respect of our fans. I have the love and respect from my family and my friends. And, um, you know, and I believe in myself and, and know what I can do and can't do. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't really in life want really much more than that. Yeah, no, that 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 makes sense. Being younger, it's like, I don't know, being younger, I'm like, oh, I want to be in a band because my friends are in bands. And I always thought being in a band or being in a band that's popular or whatever else would be the answer to my problems and fill the hole inside me, whatever I was looking for. But that's not it. It's It's all the things that you just described. Well, I've just seen other people that I'm good friends with that like have had a, a great big uh, amount of success and whatnot. And it seems like that they're never happy and they're torn apart. And there's always, you know, some kind of like tear your life apart madness going on and so forth. And I just look at it like, you know, everything is going to be what it's going to be. It's like you don't make records and you don't make albums with trying to make money in your head about what's going on. Because number one, you you know, you're not everybody else and you don't know what is going to happen when you make an album. You can only just be honest with yourself and put forth the feelings that are in in your heart and, and how you truly feel. And if the art of what you made is really good, then people will respond. And, um, the level to how much they respond, though, is something that you don't have control over. I mean, I granted back in the early days when we were on Amphetamine Reptile Records uh, and, you know, I was kind of in a roundabout ways, the same scene as, say, like Nirvana and stuff like that. Um, you know, we saw we all saw Nirvana come to a rise where all of a sudden it was overtaking of like, oh, my God, like this is so nuts how big this really cool band is getting you know but then now in retrospect like we've all seen for kurt that wasn't really uh, he still had a huge giant hole inside his heart even after all that stuff was going on so i think that if you're going to play music play it for your you know play it for yourself play it for the reasons that are inside you that you want to get out and you know, be good at what you do and and definitely, you know, take care of business. But at the same time, you know, don't don't set your sights by that one day you will feel so much better if this happens or that happens, because today is the day to right now. And that's what's really going on. Your philosophy is fucking awesome, dude. That is fucking amazing. I, I love the idea because I actually I was actually just thinking about this. I, I'm in the process of getting a new interface for my computer so I can start recording at home. And I was thinking about it the other night. I'm like, what kind of music do I want to make? Like, what do I want to? And then my brain kept going to, well, well, like, what are people listening to? And then in my head, I'm going like, who the fuck cares what people are listening to? Like, I want to make music that I want to make. Like, and the thing is, is I have nothing to prove to anybody. So I'm like, you know what? Just do it. Just have fun with it and enjoy it and love it. And the fact that I get 
pride out of sitting there and and playing with like i mean my real focus is like i want to play music with my kids like my kids are old enough now that they're like somewhat proficient with instruments i'm like we just want to record music with each other and play and have fun and i I think that's such a beautiful thing that like you just kind of just threw it to be like i don't care what other people think i'm gonna do what the truth is and let people respond how they respond i fucking love it well, thank you, man. And I think your idea is a great idea because, you know, it's really it's it's about what's inside you. You know, I feel like artistic expression when it, when it comes to music or painting or poetry or anything like that, you're not really trying to emulate like something else or you're not really trying to paint other paintings that you've seen before. It'd be like if if you loved painting and you really love Van Gogh. And you're inspired by his techniques and things like that, but you go and take that one step further and start painting Starry Night or other paintings that look a lot like that, though that is inside you because you're inspired by it. It really wasn't your uh, core feeling that that was original to you, you know, and and that's why, like, for me with like, you know, we have 13 uh, records going back and each time we went to go make a record let's say like the last one that we made everybody's like oh man i love that that's so great or you know or whatever you know it's like i can't go and make the next one and try to think about say like that last one of well i know that if i do this right here then everybody's going to dig this it's like i look at it more like Every single time that the paintbrush is picked up or the guitar pick or a vocal mic, that is a new opportunity for you as a human being to make something brand new, showing people something that they've never seen before. And um, for me, I get off on that because I'm constantly trying to freak myself out and going like, you know, I'm bored. I hate everything. Sometimes I, I just want something new. I want to be inspired and I need to inspire my own self. So I got to step out of the box and just let, let the, the real me come through and, and deal with it, whether it's ugly or beautiful or hateful or loving or whatever it is. That's a really cool point. And this kind of brings me to something that I was thinking about. Like when you start recording something for today is the day, if you come up with a riff, do you go and say like, I like if you have that immediate, like kind of like hair stand up on the back of your neck feeling like, fuck, that's good. Do you sit and play with it for a while and go, all right, let's try this with it. Or, or you just go, no, that's fucking gorgeous. Let's fucking leave it. Like, what, where's your where's your thought process with that? It has evolved throughout the years. Um, I, I found that when I was very young and I was writing songs and I was putting them together and so forth, I'd sit on my apartment floor. I had a little quarter inch, eight track, reel to reel analog recorder. And before that I had a four track cassette recorder and I'd sit there and make up like a part and be like, Oh man, that's insane. Then I'd make up like another one. Then I like mess with them. And then as I got into complex music more and more and more with odd time signatures and alternative type of uh, arrangements and so forth, you know, I would, I, I, there was a point where I was deconstructing riffs that I would make and adding on this and adding on that. And then I put this on here and tear it apart and do all this stuff. And I think as I am now, I find that the most awesome um, pieces of music that I end up writing actually end up being 
like stream of thought where I literally start playing it. And then within 15 to 30 minutes, if I just keep connecting the dots, the next thing you know, all of a sudden there's this whole musical structure that's been put together. And that to me is the most real, again, trying to capture the real. That that to me is the most real way that you can do it because I feel like that if you overthink sometimes your initial feelings that you had, as long as they were, you know, as long as it's something you like, if it's something you like and it was your initial feeling, that you should roll with that and let it go and don't worry about it too much. Connect the dots, put the rest of the song together, stand back away from it and look at it. And then at that point, if you if it all works and everything is good, you just made the perfect song because it, there was no bullshit involved. There was no preconceived anything. It was all straight from your heart and pouring it out and doing it. And I feel like some of the best ones I've ever made were made just exactly like that. Fuck, man. Yeah, that's the that's the way to do it. It has to come from the heart. And it's uh, I, I reading about your process and everything, Steve, you know, it just seems like autobiographical like you're you're writing about what you've gone through and like like you mentioned earlier that's it's your way of processing it it is it's trying to figure out your own self you know i i guess instead of being fortunate enough to have a psychologist or somebody to work through all my problems for me i would pick up an instrument and start noodling around and playing and um i remember when we were just talking about this uh, there were years back there was this day where um I don't know. It was one of those typical days like where my wife and I, you know, were there was something going on. It was driving both of us crazy. Next thing you know, we got into a big argument or whatever. And I went out the door, went out in the studio and stuff. And, you know, I've had all this range of emotions of feeling, you know, you know, kind of pissed, a little bit hurt, this and that. And I had the um, piano uh, like a, it, it was a U.S. I believe it was a. USB MIDI keyboard, but with a grand piano sample on it or whatever. And, um, and I started like playing this piece or whatever. And about 30 minutes later, I got through doing that. And then I sat back and listened to it. And I, I was like, you know, this is so much like right this moment right now that that song's called free at last. It's on an album called access of Eden. And, um, you know, and so I feel like that, you know, it's it's always that way. Like when I was a little kid, I, I used to get pissed off at my parents. They'd fucking make me really mad. And and my primitive way of doing that then was I'd go down in the basement and I had a Marshall Amped and I'd just turn every fucking knob as all the way to the right, <laughs> as far as it could go. And on I'd plug a guitar in and on purpose, not even play, just take my hand and like just go blah, blah. You know, uh, 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 and just just to fucking let them know, like I wasn't taking it, and I was just fucking pissed, and you know, it drive them out of their mind because there's just like crazy noise going on, blasting through the house, probably breaking shit. Um, (laughs) you know, but uh, you know, I I think everybody, you know, everybody's got their thing, you know, and for me, it it, it's just always been music is some way to kind of like just let it out. Yeah, either listening to it or playing it has always been ther- very therapeutic for me. And it's I, I have the same approach. You know, I, I did an album a couple years ago, and it, the whole album was about the year prior and me dealing with everything that I was going through at the time. 
it's uh, probably been the most therapeutic thing in my life. You know, what's really wild is that like when you write lyrics and so forth, uh, a lot of times when you're writing lyrics, you think you know what it is that you're talking about. Like when you're either using imagery or you're or you're writing things down and it all is coming together and all this kind of stuff. And I find it really far out to like later on, like six months or a year later or something like that. If you happen to see the words written in text on paper or in a CD booklet or a LP uh, insert and you read like what you had writ- written down there, um, you see all this other like stuff that that will unlock different memories and emotions of things that you had going on. And at the time when you were writing that song, you you maybe didn't really have that stuff right on the surface. And maybe you didn't even want to maybe you didn't want to confront it or face it. So you were kind of colloquially or kind of not masking, but kind of using different words to explain how you feel. But then you see it later on and you're like, oh, my God, like, I, I, oh, yeah, I remember why I said that. <laughs> or, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, you bet, you know. And <laughs> so sometimes we're not honest with ourselves is what I'm trying to say when we're doing it. Yeah. It's very true. And the songs take on different meaning as time goes on even my own songs i there was a song i wrote on my last record that was me making fun of tropes from breakup songs of my favorite bands right and in the process of writing the song my relationship ended and then it became a break a song about my breakup and i was like <laughs> oh shit that's how it goes <laughs> it's all <laughs> circle fuck so steve now let's talk about your 2020 album no good to anyone now a lot of personal tough experience that you went through went into this album yes yeah um you know i obviously feel way better <laughs> these days and it, uh but yeah i i i was very lucky throughout my life to never really have any illness or uh like really bad like i'd never broken an arm or anything like that um and uh Around about 2014, I was cruising down the highway going to go pick up our drummer in New York, and a lady pulled out on the highway on a Black Friday night with her girlfriends, and she wasn't paying attention to what she was doing, and she clipped the back end of that van when we were going about 70 miles an hour, and uh, it flipped the van uh, upside down and backwards. And uh, so it rolled and landed on its top upside down and slid about 120 yards. Um, and so, you know, I got out of the van and walked out of it and uh, was way out of it in my head when I got out of it and um, went to a hospital, had, you know, broken glass all over me, blah, 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 blah. And um, it was Black Friday night, so, like, it wasn't, like, at the emergency room. They were really wanting to give you the ultimate awesome treatment. It was more like, oh, yeah, 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 he's a van accident, 70 miles an hour, upside down. Could have killed him, whatever. Get in here. We'll shoot a couple x-rays. Okay, you're totally fine. We'll see you later on. Take it easy. And so we got discharged the next uh, morning, and I didn't realize it, but— the uh, accident had shattered my right hip socket and it had dislocated my left hip about halfway out of its socket. 
And um, I was in. They missed that at the hospital. Yes, and and so I ended up because I was in so much uh, pain from the uh, getting thrown around inside the van. I couldn't discern whether my elbow hurt or my big toe hurt or my earlobe or you know. I just felt like a rag doll that had been thrown into a wall. And um, so after time went on and uh, the shock of the accident and everything started to wear off, I was having pain and I, I didn't understand where it was coming from. And our wonderful uh, healthcare system, when I went to go get this all checked out, th- for some reason they started focusing on like my knee and was thinking that something was wrong with my knee. And then they kept looking at it, but then they'd say, you know, you, you, you don't need a knee replacement, we, you know. And then, so as this kept degenerating and getting worse, it, it went to from a point of being able to hobble around normal uh, a little bit to a limp developing, and then eventually to where I had a cane. And, um, and then by luck would have it, while Satan was kicking my ass, um, he had to drop some Lyme disease down on me. And uh, I, I got bit by either a tick or a mosquito or something that gave it to me. And so I had the double whammo of a broken, shattered hip, a dislocated hip, and a disease that makes it feel like the stamping press from the movie Terminator is smashing you and whatnot. And uh. <laughs> yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. So um, you know, throughout all that, I mean, there there were points where I had went from a pretty in decent shape dude, I guess, to on the couch curled up in a fetal position with drool coming out of my mouth, trying to fight off a chronic pain that had been going on for like 38 or 40 hours in a row with no sleep. And um, I luckily, after about three to four years of it being really bad like that, um, I went to the right doctor and uh, I went to a a Lyme doctor and this guy was involved in Eastern medicine as well. And he diagnosed me actually the way that that came about is that Lyme killed my dog. And, and so when I was telling him about that, he looked at my eyes and he could tell the, uh, because my eyes had a yellowish kind of content to them that he thought I had Lyme disease. And so once he did test me, I ended up having like eight different bacterial infections from that Lyme. And, um, so then on the legs end of things, I was frustrated after 20-something trips about what this knee was doing and all this. And then one day I thought, you know, I need to go to a hospital where rich people go to instead of the one I go to. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> I live in the area where there's a lot a lot of people with, you know, low income and the hospital was like uh, – you know, they give you an empty quarter pounder box or uh, uh, to sit and hold to, for comfort or something while you're waiting. And so I went to this other hospital, and that that very first visit, the dude looked at my knee, took an X-ray, then thought about it again, made me go down and take another X-ray, but this time my hips. And that's when I came back, and he showed me. He's like, you know, I cannot believe that you 
have been able to even get around because like your hip and if you didn't notice your right leg is about an inch and a half shorter than your left one because there's nothing to stop the top of the femur because there's no socket anymore yeah yeah and and that really sucked (laughs) um you you know how long were you how long from the accident to when you made that discovery um about i'd say it was about three and a half years oh my god and how how did you survive that long um, Were you taking like elephant tranquilizers or something? No, no. I, I'm really uh, against like taking opiates and things like that for pain and whatnot. And um, so basically when the Lyme disease stuff started crushing the hell out of me, um, I, 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 the only thing I could think of was to not uh, drink or like get the doctor to give me pain pills but try to try to deal with it through herbal like medications. And um, it was hard as hell because most people that have stuff like this wrong with them, 18% of people that have Lyme disease uh, commit suicide. I think is the statistic. It's the third, it's in the top three most painful chronic illnesses that you can have. And um, you know, the, the main thing that about it, that's just uh, the hard part about it is that when it starts coming on you, um, there's no way really to stop it from doing what it's doing until it works its course. And along with it, another problematic thing about it was that you get a, a brain fog is what they call it, but a brain fog, you'll be typing an email and you're in the middle of doing it, but then the dog barks or the teapot starts whistling or something. And that little tiny distraction can confuse you and you'll leave what you were doing and not even realize that you were writing an email or doing whatever it was because you're all confused a lot of times. So it's a terrible thing to go through. And I feel for anybody um, that has it, but I, what was crazy about it was that, you know, obviously my love of music and wanting to continue playing um, I kept playing and, and, uh, and at one point when I was on tour with nail bomb, um, you know, I got my cane and all this stuff and I had a system together. I was like with our tour manager, okay, check this out. I'm going to lay down in the van all day and all night. Now, when it's about 30 minutes for me to play, you holler at me and I'm going inside. And then I would go up, drop the cane off to the side and then put my guitar on and then get up there. And I hate to say it, but I would just go ahead and rock the hell out with with a ferocious like leg pain going on that was killing me. And, um, you know, the very last show of the Nail Bomb Tour was when, like, because by that time, too, the cane was literally coming up with me. kind of discreetly because I didn't want everybody to see me in this kind of pain to share with the fans because I didn't want anybody feeling sorry for me or feeling bad for me. And so I put it, put it over by my amp and um, you know, but I mean, it was all I could do to like stand there and do that. Um, Now today, uh, you know, I got, I obviously, I got both my hips replaced, which was another whole part of the odyssey, but 
as painful that as that was, that was well worth it because it's like I have bionic legs now. I have a brand new pair of legs in the sense of I can, you know, tear a Jeep apart. I can rebuild a car. I can um, load in six cords of wood. I can I can do whatever. And um, my legs are pure power strong. And it feels so great to be able to walk, you know, in a straight line without a limp or like a normal person, you know. Yeah. And, you know, as you're telling that story, I'm in my head. I'm like, note to self, if you ever get in a really bad accident, tell the cab to take you to the good hospital. Yes. Go to the most expensive part of town and then go in there. And as long as they don't throw you out, then then you'll be OK. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really happy you were able to uh, to bounce back from that, because that's that's crazy. And, you know, something you said in another interview really jumped out to me. Uh, just talking about the whole experience, you said that, uh, you know, you woke up and realized that friendship, love, and respect is earned through time, and it should not and cannot be given freely. And that really resonated with me because of a lot a lot of what I've dealt with in my life and lately is, I don't know, just wanting the respect of everybody or wanting to be friends with everybody and I like that type of stuff. And go, going through some tough times, you just find out really quick who your real friends are. And your friends are your friends. You know who they are. They've been your friends for a while. You know, you've got some friends. Uh, you've got your family. Maybe you have a girlfriend or a spouse as well. And, and that's it. And, and that's what really matters. It is, man. I mean, you know, when you almost like I, when, I almost died like like a, a couple of times, like throughout and having both those hip surgeries, they warned me before I had them with as sick as I was um, that I might not you know, there's a chance you might not like make it through. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was really tripped out to go through a closing your eyes and um, knowing that this may be the end. And and it was so like that, that I literally at one point, I sold all of my, uh, uh, not all, but almost all of my private possessions, except for like a few things that were key that, that, that in, in case I made it. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, and once you get your life back, I mean, that's why right now, I mean, we, you know, the world is obviously a really hard place and it's hard as hell. And I think sometimes when people are around me, they might wonder like, God, it's either like you deal with this really, really well or, or you're insane or I don't know what. And, but the answer is, is called, well, you know, I'll tell you what, I am thankful every single day that I get up, jump to my feet, walk around, have another day to be able to live, another be able to day to do things, to be able to move around, be free and so forth. And just to simply have my life and, and my family and everything I mean, it, it is truly the greatest gift in the world. And I mean, that's not to say that I don't get fucking pissed off and want to kill everybody like sometimes, <laughs> you know, because I definitely do. But there is that central core in me that changed. I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, I, and and a lot of it, to be honest with you, is for the good. You know, I feel like a lot of things that... I needed to work on a lot of things that, you know, the, the you get pretty humble when you go through um, 
things like that. You know, you walk in a store, people think that you're on massive drugs because you're walking like really weird or they think you've got some kind of mental illness because like the the disease kind of crumps you up a bit or whatever. And so you seem really not normal. And, um, you know, and so all this humility gets in place and then, you know, you come out on top of it like I like I feel I have and and you start to understand, you know, it's like life is just really a fleeting moment and and you need to fill it with with happiness and with love for the other people around you and um you know, if there are people around you that are toxic or insane that drive you crazy, don't waste another minute like be, surround yourself with people who bring positive energy to you that that uh you know that that can understand you and love you and take you as you are just like you should for them yeah that's beautiful and that's a that's a theme we come back to on this show all the time is you know all we have is today and just just being thankful for what we have because i like you steve i i've really been put through the ringer with different things i've been through and i just had to be taught the lesson that like hey be humble and appreciate what you have it's really funny we recorded the first segment of this yesterday and keith is this not fucking the weirdest thing in the world that this is what steve is talking about like we didn't steer the conversation in this que- in this direction at all like but the First segment that we recorded yesterday, we were talking about, um, you know, uh, death. And uh, I think one of the things that kind of had it hard on my brain is today is July 1st. Today's the day that my father passed away 34 years ago. Mm. And so uh, I always, uh, my neighbor across the street was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about 18 months ago. And I watched them deliver a hospital bed to his house yesterday. And I don't get upset by a lot of things I've kind of toughened myself up pretty hard, but um, I really got choked up on the show yesterday when we were recording because it was that moment of like, you know, uh, you don't know when that phone call is coming or that moment of, you know, someone clipping the back of your van while you're doing 70. Uh, It's a, it's an instant. And all of a sudden everything that you thought was promised to you and everything that you thought you deserved and everything that you thought was yours is fucking gone in an instant. Um, and it really do- is one of those themes we consistently come back to. Keith and I have had long conversations about loss in our families because we both experienced it at pretty young ages. And uh, one of those things that uh, we come back to on this show is that, you know, uh, we consistently th- try to be grateful and show gratitude for what we have when we have it. And, uh, I actually was just thinking about this the other day. Cause, uh, my wife was like, Hey, can you update? And this is such a mundane thing, but she was like, can you update the stuff on the notes on your phone? So when I go to Costco, I have the newest list so I can get everything we need. And I said, yeah, sure. And I actually found a note that I had written to myself and I was like, Oh shit, I forgot about this. Uh, let me take a deep breath because I'm, I know I'm going to get upset about this, but <clears throat> so I'm currently waiting for my wife to come out of surgery and I'm listening to people make phone calls to concerned family members and friends with updates about their loved ones conditions. I've heard the following words oncology, chemotherapy, terminal stage four. You can hear the masked panic in people's voices when they repeat the phrases like we just have to see, we'll just have to wait. We'll see what comes next. We'll see what comes next. 
It really makes you appreciate when you think life is normal. That's the odd thing about life. We all know that this phone call or this moment is coming. One day you'll get something that comes out of the blue. That person making a phone call to inform you that a close one person or person close to you is either sick or dying. It's inevitable. Yet we live every single fucking day like today is just another day, another annoyance. We're all guilty of it. The trick is we have to tr- make sure that we understand this isn't just another day. So I just, I thought that was kind of. <laughs> you had a life affirming moment right there of getting a good grasp about what it's all about and, and putting it right out there, man. Yeah. And just for some context, my wife uh, gave birth to twins and was misdiagnosed. And uh, she ended up with this thing called HELP syndrome. So she was in complete liver, liver failure. She had multiple blood transfusions. She had a uterine artery embolism. Um, and this was in the course of about 12 hours. So she gave birth to two kids and then spent the next 17 days in intensive care. Oh my God. Which I'm sure you were worried out of your mind. And you know what the selfish thing is, is, you know, my biggest worry was at first, how am I going to raise two kids by myself? That was the selfish thing I kept thinking about. And what I really reflect back on that is what I really should have been thinking of was how am I going to make sure that these kids lives are okay? Like, cause I grew up without my, my father passed away when I was five. Um, so I essentially grew up without him. Um, and I turned out all right. I, what my thought process should have been going to is what can I do to make sure that my wife is comfortable and that she's okay. And what can I do to advocate for her? And then secondarily, if things don't go as planned, what can I do to make sure my kids are okay? And it was, it was fucking heavy, man, but it was really, I, I love that you shared that story, Steve. Thank you. That, I love that you shared that story right there, man. That that definitely like hit me inside pretty hard. Actually, like li- listening to what you were saying there, I I feel for you with all of that going on. I mean, you know, part of what you were saying in that, I was also thinking when you were speaking, like you know, I think that coping with life is a very tricky and complex thing in a lot of ways. And it's funny because I've, I feel like that I've always had a hard time um, accepting loss and uh, you know, uh, just bad stuff happening, you know, bad stuff happening to me or whatever. And another symptom of these days or whatever is just every time something bad happens to me and I lose or whatever happened. You know, it's like, it's like, I, I try to keep in mind, you know, I'm just a normal human being. And like, it's like, you know, it sounds stupid, but like, I'm not special and, and life isn't fair uh, all the time. And, um, you know, so when tragedy happens or something really, really bad happens, I have to, you know, try to kind of keep, keep this perspective about reminding myself like, Hey man, you know, like, like the, the, all that you can do is be the best you that you can be and, and be that person for not only for yourself, but, but for everybody else around you. And, um, you know, it, it's tough because, you know, it's easy to get lost in the madness of like loss and, and, and everything going on around you. But, 
the beauty is the beauty that's there that you have. And it, it, it might sound similar to what you're saying there, but like life is, is really truly a fleeting moment. I mean, my, my sons are about 17 and 20 and the, the 20 year old is about to head off to school at, uh, in New York. And, um, you know, where we've been a tight knit little family like this and so forth, you know, each integral, each, each member of the family is very important to each other. And, um, you know, during COVID and so forth, there was a point where, you know, he was feeling pretty upset about everything he had, you know, he's young man, he's wanting to do his thing. And obviously, uh, he ended up zooming um, his school with NYU from here at our house, and um, you know he he wanted to get out of the woods. Go if you've ever seen that movie, Captain Fantastic. Is it not Captain? I was Fantastic? just thinking of that movie. Yes. yes, that's a lot like my family, and uh, and so for me, being his dad and um, him, my first child. Uh, you know, I started doing what, say, you were doing there uh, in in your letter, in your note that you were reading. I started thinking, you know, how am I going to make it about him? How you know how how am I going to be making with him gone and and all this? And I and I was kind of overlooking, um, you know, that even though I didn't want him to go, it, it's it, it, his happiness is more important than mine by a lot, and. It's it's he he ended up going down to Boston for a few months and so forth uh, with his girlfriend. And they lived down there for three months in, in the fall of 2020. And, you know, I was depressed out of my mind. I've, I I wanted to break into tears, like from just missing my son so much and worried about him with COVID and everything going on. And uh and, you know, now it's so funny because now he's fixing to leave in a couple of months and so forth. And I feel like that in coping with the loss of it's like I almost got my training wheels out of that experience of him going down there and understanding. It's like, you know what, man, enjoy all the thoughts of all the things that you did together through him being a baby through now and he and there's more beautiful things to come he might not be right next to you every day or around here every day but you know it is just life is ever changing and so uh you just got to try to really dig on the now with the people that are around you that you love and uh and it, and if they ever go away like just make sure that all the days that you did have them when they were here that they were really fulfilling days you know yeah and to to do what you did and support your child in his dreams like that to go off to NYU is the absolute best thing you could have done because you know you could be like oh no you're not going there you're staying here or fight against it and if you do that it's only going to drive a huge wedge between you and your son yeah, I, I could never, I mean, one thing with our kids ever since they've been born, and some people might disagree with us or whatever and so forth, but I've always felt like the best way to raise great young men is to let them make their own decisions, like mm -hmm. a lot a lot of the time. Like, I mean, unless they're going to get absolutely hurt doing what, Dad, I'm going to skydive with no parachute. Okay, no, <laughs> no, I don't think you can do that. Uh but like if it's anything else, you know, it's like 
it it teaches responsibility and it teaches uh, self-sufficient thinking about doing what's right or doing what's wrong. And and it and it's funny because usually parents think that if you ride your kids like crazy and you're always telling them what to do and you you know you got to do this, you got to do that, and I don't want you doing that, you know, that they're going to turn out awesome, you know. But like with us, like you know, for instance, both the kids and this is the dad bragging moment, like. You know, Hank, he graduated, I think, in his high school, like second in grade point average. And then now he's in NYU film school on a full scholarship. Never once told him to do his homework ever. The kid, (laughs) he always did it on his own because it was his desire of like wanting to do what he wants to do. And, you know, our, our son, Willie, that's his younger brother. It's like. Willie is, you know, the coolest kid in the world. He's got like all A's in high school and whatnot, but it's not like he's not, you know, letting his freak flag fly. He's a crazy skateboarder that, you know, does crazy dangerous tricks and all kinds of insane stuff, you know. Um, And but like it's great because I think that we raised them with a free mind and a free heart. And now, you know, both those guys I see them as as young men, and they represent to me like everything that you would that you would want your you know your kid to embody. You know, and it's nothing, no credit of mine. They did it. Yeah, they have to want it. I mean, I did. I never did any home. Well, let me say this: I did the bare minimum. <laughs> My older brother was like your son who gets all A's. He wanted it. You know, full ride to college, all that stuff. You got to want it. No one can make you do it. Yeah, I mean, you find your own path, you know. I I, I just feel like that a, a person is self-molding in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, you teach kids right from wrong, obviously, in the, in the basic sense. But I'm just saying that, like, I feel like that, if, you know, if you want somebody— and it doesn't just go for your kids. I feel like it's for your friends. It's for your coworkers, for people around you. I want everybody to be themselves. You know, I want to be, I want it. My rule of thumb is I'm me, I'm doing me, this is me. And I'm hoping that if you chose to hang around me, that you can dig on this. And, and, and I'm going to, in return, give to you an ultimate open mind of like whatever it is that you're all about or whatever you're into. I'll tell you what I really think. But I wouldn't choose to hang around you if I didn't like you. And so I want you to be you. I want you to be the person that you are and be real, you know, because to quote Ali G, to the real is what it's about. (laughs) That's beautiful. Well, Steve, in addition to a long storied career with Today is the Day and uh, the wonderful family you have, you also are a top recording engineer and have worked with some of our favorite bands, Converge, Bane, Lamb of God, Dead Guy, others. How and when did you get started recording bands? Well, I think the recording thing kind of came hand in hand with being um, uh, a fat kid stuck in the basement with no friends and nobody, (laughs) (laughs) nobody to jam with. And I, I talked my dad into, buying a Fostex X15-2 four-track cassette recorder. And 
I wanted to make my own songs. I wasn't really big on playing cover songs of other people uh, because it seemed more natural to me to make up my own way of playing and way of making songs up. And, you know, I got so fascinated with that. Eventually there was a, like I said earlier, a quarter inch, eight track reel to reel. And then it went more and it went more. And then when I started um, Today is Today, I actually, the first demos that we did were on that very same quarter inch, eight track reel to reel. Um, And then um, eventually around 1996, uh, Primus had made an album that had Winona's got a big brown beaver on it. And, um, and, and I remember reading in a magazine that they were talking about how they had bought eight app machines and did the whole thing themselves at home or whatever. And that just blew my mind because at that time around 1996, Home recording or like uh, the band itself taking its recordings to a full album process wasn't really the way that things were still done at that time. Full service studios were in effect and so forth. And um, so I got a loan and I got a couple of ADAP machines, ended up getting a third one to link all three for 24 tracks. And, uh, you know, living in Nashville and with my band having a, a couple albums out and so forth, that that around 96, I opened up Austin Enterprise Recording and Mastering. And, um, you know, I had been recording bands before that. I recorded, you know, all our demos and, and, uh, and so forth and worked on the records and so forth. But I realized in a hands-on way, though, that for me, like, making this music, it was probably best that I do it myself because I know the sound that I've got in my head. And then, and then there, you know, uh, right along the way, I was, I was lucky to get to work with a lot of cool people and so forth. You know, um, I did some recording with Scott Burns down in Florida. There was a studio up in um, Detroit called White Room Studios that some guys own that now own Vintage King. And, um, you know, so uh, I ended up getting this fascination with pro audio gear and especially vintage pro audio gear, like stuff like knee preamps and compressors, uh, Neumann microphones and the stuff that real record making gear uh, is made out of. And um, along the way, um, you know, I was fortunate enough to have different people call me up. Like I remember when Mikey from Goat Boy Records uh called up one day and he's like, Hey Steve, you know, there's this band and um, they're called burn the priest. And I was like, Oh, burn the priest. You mean like on the, the burn the priest Z seven inch. I've got that man. And, 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 you know, and, and he's like, uh, well, I want you, I want, they want you to record them at your studio. You know, can, can I set up a recording up there? And, you know, they came up and recorded and we made that album. Then, then they ended up, uh, that album led to them getting their prosthetic records uh, deal. And then they came back to do their first prosthetic album, uh, which is uh lamb of God, new American gospel. And uh, you know, and, and then, you know, a lot of times it was just fate, fate would have it. It's like funny enough when, um, after I did, um, after I did, uh, I believe it was, it was a tour with, I hate God and so forth. And I had just met my wife and um, we had this wild, like 
love at first sight thing that that happened where we met each other and um everything just fell right into place and blew my mind and and she traveled for like a few days in, in, during that tour with me and um when she had to go back home and I got back home off the tour I was just like you know oh my god I I miss this girl so bad I I, I can't wait to see her again and then all of a sudden the phone rang and it was Kurt Ballou from Converge saying, Hey, Steve, you know, we're going to do this record for Equal Vision Records called When Forever Comes Crashing. Um, would you be interested in coming up here to record that, you know, with us? And I was like, of course, you know, where do you live at? And they're like, we live in Boston. And I'm like, oh my God, that's where Hannah lives. So, uh. so you, you know, so. Funny enough, I was right back up in Boston um, not very long after that. And, um, you know, and so, I mean, I've just been really very lucky and blessed. I mean, Dead Guy Guys were a band that we played with, and and I thought they absolutely shredded. I love Fixation on a Coworker. And um, they asked me about doing one with them, and we went up to uh, this studio where uh, Rollins Band did... uh, the end of silence and uh recorded that record there and so forth and you know and and then there's just oddball ones just you know for instance like at one point in time uh you know get a phone call and um it or actually i met him in person sean crayon from slipknot came out to one of our shows and um wanted to work with me on music and so forth and so i mean it, it it's been a very lucky and blessed life and so forth. And I, I think part of it's just been that most people know that I'm no bullshit about things and very real. And they also know that I will do what it takes to make the very best thing possible for them. If it takes me staying awake for like three days in a row, no sleep, no food, no nothing, whatever. I, I, I don't care because the art is what matters the most. And um, you know, and so, yeah, like looking back on my life, I, I, I'm just thankful for all the great people that I've ever gotten to record and work with. Yeah, that's, that's awesome stuff. Do you have like a, do you have like a favorite memory that sticks out? Like a really memorable something that happened just, just with all the different bands you've worked with and everyone you've recorded? I thought of a funny one just now. <laughs> I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a great memory or not because you know you forget these things at a later time, and it's almost yeah. not it's almost not fair for me to tell this story because I read Randy recounting this from Lamb of God, and it made me laugh because it almost made me go like, did I really do that? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, because I you forget these things, but no, you know, it's like. Uh, just in the studio work and the bands, you know, trying to get the vocals done and, you know, that, but Randy's out there trying to nail a vocal part, but he was a little bit, uh, under the spirits, a little bit, a little, a little out of his head at the moment. And there's a lot of tension and all this stuff. And I'm, you know, living it back and forth, but kind of as the intermediary fuse between the guys in the band behind me, ready to like rip stuff apart and then him out there in the other room, like, and you know, and missing cues and all this stuff. And and then, like, whatever point, like, one, one of the guys in the band was like, Steve, I mean, you got to get him, you know, you got to get him to cut the nail this thing. This is insane. And, like, I just, like, pushed my finger down and I talked back to him, like, you know, Randy, 
if you don't nail this fucking vocal part, I'm going to come through this fucking glass and kill you. And like, and like, <laughs> you know, and like, and the funny thing is he did nail the vocal part, like right after that, you know? Um, yeah. but, uh, other one too, that popped in my mind is I recorded anal cunt one time. Oh, not one time. Oh, I, well. I, I, Fuck I, actually, yes. I recorded them a <laughs> bunch of times and, uh, and you know, recording them was like recording, a bunch of super wasted raccoons going. <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, just you gotta watch every second to make sure something crazy is not gonna fucking happen. And yeah. I remember Josh that played uh, guitar and stuff. You know, like I had the Studer tape machine that it was like my baby. I mean, I would literally would be on a phone call to Switzerland at like four o'clock in the morning to talk to to a Studer company about some little tiny part or something. And I'd get like a little cloth out and polish it and all this stuff. So, it's, you know, it's like my baby and um, uber expensive. And, and uh, I remember like Josh is over here, like playing guitar to some like crazy song and like all his guitar strings, not cut off like wire, like a half a foot of guitar string wires, like all sticking out everywhere. And the next day, you know, he's like, and it's a pointy headed, like metal guitar where it's got a hockey head with a point on the end of it. <laughs> and like, yeah. and he's out here, like, you know, just like, ripping like nuts and his headstock is swinging back and forth about to knock one of the VU meters out of my friggin' tape machine. And, um, you know, and like, I mean, uh, at one point in time, another one was I wanted, uh, Seth to, to record on, um, my album on sadness will prevail. And, um, I had this song called butterflies, which is like this, uh, demented, improvisational piano grind weird song and it is very freaky and so i'm like okay seth um you know and he's like you gotta come pick me up and i'm like okay well just give me an address i'll come pick up okay you gotta come to my parents house i'm like okay i'm coming to your parents house so i drive down to this area and it's like the snooty part of massachusetts it's wellesley massachusetts the absolute Area that you would not kind of picture Seth being from and whatnot, right. you know. Yeah. And so I'm driving down this street, and it's like three million dollar home, two million dollar <laughs> home, three million dollar home, and then right in the middle of a street full of houses like that, there is this house that looks like it's from a horror movie that it's <laughs> got like cobwebs and moss and shit hanging off of it and everything, you know, and. And he comes out, jumps in the car and all this. And um, and so, like, we're, you know, we're riding back out to the studio and everything. And um, he said, got to stop at the store. And I'm like, okay, I'm stopping at the store. Buys a big, giant bottle of mezcal or whatever. And, like, comes back in. I'm like, okay, okay. So I'm going to get everything ready to go and uh, in a few minutes. And, and I've got the headphones out there for you in the other room. And he's like, got to get fucked up first. And I'm like, okay. I'm I, meaning you do. As in me. And and, I, and I'm like, what? And he's like, man, if we're going to get out there, then we need to get really out there. And I'm like, <laughs> how am I going to operate the tape machine Like, if I like, do that and stuff? And he's like, I'm not doing the fucking song unless you do. And I'm like, okay, I really want this bro to sing on my song. And he's my buddy. But like, he was determined about this shit. And so... 
I got fucked up and I'm like really fucked up and, and, and I'm sitting there in the chair and, um, I've got to my left, this remote control. And I, so I remind him again, the headphones are out in the other room. Okay. And he's like, not doing it out there. And I'm like, okay, man, um, where, where do you want to like do it at? And he's like in here with you in between the speakers. And I'm like, um, okay. So you want to sing the song in the control room with no headphones and just sing in between the speakers while I'm like recording it. And the music's going back into your microphone and all that kind of shit. And he's like, he's like, yeah, dude, are we, are we going to fucking do this for real or what? And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) apparently not. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, okay. Yeah. And so I get in my chair and the, the tape machine had this bass on it that, that was kind of angled up and so forth, almost like a monitor on stage. And so it's like, I'm sitting here and, and I hit the record on the tape machine and I, you know, I didn't know what the fuck he was going to do or whatever, like other than, you know, sing and stuff. And of course, when you're thinking about Seth singing, singing is a very widely descriptive loose term. And so all of a sudden, if you could imagine being fucked up out of your mind right next to my head, like he leans down with his mouth, like, like parallel left of my ear with the microphone. And it starts busting out these crazy, like pig and hog and animal sounds. And like, it's like, You know, and I, and I'm like, and it's like literally like an inch away from my ear while he's doing this shit. And, and I'm like, you know, maintaining my cool. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to flinch. I think he was attempting to freak me out. And it, it, which inside he freaked me out, but I wasn't about to let him know that on the outside. So I just sat there and, um, but that was one of the most insane recording sessions of all time because you, you just had to be there. If you get a minute to listen to that track, it's called Butterflies, but it sounds like someone morphing into altered states, the movie or something, oh, yeah. and <laughs> whoa, like transforming into an animal or something. I don't know. Yeah, like how could anything be crazier than that? That is wild. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's the weirdness of you. Like I like anal cunt, and you know, and it's one thing when he's up on stage, and then it's one thing when it's coming out of your speakers when you're listening to it or earbuds or something like that. But it's another thing to have the live human's head right next to your head and then and, and literally screaming as loud and crazy and snarling and all this weird shit. I was just like, I, I felt like telling him, like, bro, I think you did freak me out. I'm freaked out now. Like, like, <laughs> like that was fucked up. I love a good Seth Putnam story. I love, I fucking, there was like part of, that was part of my kind of like early rebellion in high school was I had an anal cunt. Uh, well, it didn't say anal cunt. It had the A-X-C-X thing, but I had it on my backpack and I went to an all boys Catholic school. And I remember I walked in the door 
<laughs> one day and finally somebody got a good look at it and they were like take that off your backpack right now and i was like what and they're like that patch on your backpack give it to me and i was like oh okay i'll take it off and they're like no you aren't I'm like they took it from me like I was god like, oh. and in my head i'm going like just just don't call my mom don't don't call my mom because she'll take all my records <laughs> yeah and you know what is really weird i'll just throw this in as a closing note on him is that like that dude was like the Lenny Bruce of of like music in a lot of ways, and 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 he was he was highly intelligent, like really really intelligent, and um and it was it was so weird because he was so misunderstood because his thing was like okay, I live in Wellesley, Massachusetts the most politically correct place in the history of the world throughout the PMRC years and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and so if we're going to be talking about art, then I'm going to challenge your sensibilities. And so he was like some kind of bizarre Lenny Bruce cross with George Carlin or like, say, you know, because there was a sense of humor about it and everything. And, you know, but he was honest. Too, you know, I mean, I think at one point because I wanted him to like my band and 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 I, I wanted to know because I thought, man, you know, I push buttons. I fucking I feel like I make some really fucking out there music, man. Surely like you get this shit that I do. Right. And so I asked him one time when we were in the studio, I was like, I just said, I think I said simply like, do, do, do you like do you like today's day? And he's like, no. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I watched a documentary over the summertime called uh, Slave to the Grind, and they had a whole section uh, about Seth. And one of the things uh, it was uh, Tim Morse came on and spoke about him. And he was like, you know what? People say what they say about Seth, but like he was my best friend and I loved fucking hanging out with him and watching The Simpsons and giving people shit and fucking having a good time so like i i always think about that when i think about like you know how people like oh he was this and he was that and it's like look man uh i, I don't know where you want to go with this but in my head i'm going like you're sitting there listening to his best friend talk about him and it's like this guy is just like gushing about how fun and how smart and how empathetic seth really was and it was right. like a, a lot of what he was doing and i think tim makes a good comparison i think he calls him he's like you know he was like andy kaufman like yes. you didn't know you didn't know if it was a fucking joke or not like half the time it was a joke and then the only person in on it was seth like seth was the only person he'd be sitting there cracking up and it'd be like you just pissed off a fucking 250 people. What the fuck are you doing? Like, why yeah. are you doing this? And Seth is sitting there because he's he his only aim was to seem to piss people off and crack himself up. Like, it was wild. I mean, I lived right there in Massachusetts and got to see them play so many times. And I played shows with them. And I mean, you know, I, I the, what I what I miss about him is that like. There is something lost in the way everything is now in the sense of I just think that like the stage is the stage and a movie is a movie and a poem is a poem. And there are things in life that are ugly. There are things in life that are terrible, warts and all, hateful, this and this and that. 
And it's like, it'd be, I feel like the, if the towering inferno was made today, instead of having the building burn down and fall to the ground, they would have a small wastebasket fire or something because it would be too emotionally disturbing to have the idea of the, you know, and we wouldn't want to freak anybody out who possibly has lost a loved one in a building falling to the ground that was burning. And it's like, it's like, listen, this is what art is supposed to do. It's supposed to challenge your sensibilities. It's supposed to make you think about things. It's supposed to show you sometimes the ugly side of things. You know, it's like, uh, you know, to me, like a good example of it is like the movie Schindler's List. You know, the Schindler's List has a lot of themes in it that are very, very dark and hardcore and insane in it. And, you know, it really shines a light on the the terrors of like what was going on in Nazi Germany, like at that time and so forth. And, you know, to to tell that story, though, like Steven Spielberg couldn't like, you know, take all that stuff out just because it makes you feel uncomfortable or something like that, because the whole fucking point of it is to make you feel uncomfortable about it because you should feel uncomfortable about it, you know? Because this was, that was the reality. Because that that, was the reality of it, you know? And I think that, I think that true art, you know, if you're, if we're going to evolve as a civilization and as a people, um, we need to start opening our minds again about different things and understanding a lot of things like that, you know, um, unless it is labeled as such or put out as a pamphlet about this subject or that subject or that subject or whatever, and uh, you know, th- if it's on the stage, if it's in a CD, if it's on in a movie, if it's in whatever, I mean, this is a moment of fantasy in a way. It's a fantasy that can depict reality. It's a safe zone, actually, that you can see the horrors of things. You can... You can see the trauma that something causes or hear the trauma, you know, Slayer, you know, some of the words to their songs and and so forth. You know, it's almost like it's painting a picture of different things that are absolutely horrific and insane and so forth. And it's shocking and it's scary and it's crazy, you know, but like, I think that that is what artists are for, that they're not just there to soothe you and please you and always always meet every expectation of what your moral right and wrong is it's like they're more to maybe make you take a look at your own self by showing you different things that that um are the harsh reality of like what it is and then that way you can self reflect on yourself you know, it's like you watch Friday the 13th and you see a guy with like a butcher knife and like and he's like stabbing the hell out of somebody or something, you know, and it's like it's like, you you know, of course, now these days it's not terrifying. We've seen many more things than that. But I'm just saying that, you know, when you see that, though, it's like your, your reaction to it is like. Uh, horror like i like oh my god like you know you look at you look inside yourself you know could i ever do something like that would i ever do something like that um what would happen if somebody did something like that around me it brings a million questions into your mind um and so i just uh i hope that in our culture overall that like 
are continues to evolve, continues to be a free forum to be able to express yourself and and show people things to contemplate and think about that maybe are some of the harder things in life to think about. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it it should be challenging. It can't be everything for everybody. Steve, I want to take a moment for you to tell us what's coming up. Well, um, basically, uh, after a long, <laughs> just like everybody else, you know, uh, living through the, the, the COVID days, we have finally come out here ready for uh, life to begin again. And this last Monday, it, it did begin again. We launched our record label, Supernova Records. And um, basically what that entailed was just that um, my contract had been fulfilled and I wanted to carry on with the reissues and so forth and release them myself. Uh, you know, I, I, I could have re- renewed and went with what I was doing before, but I had realized that I wanted to going forward just just do it under our own wing and our own thing. And so I had started Supernova Records in really I started in 1992 when we put our first demo out on a cassette for today's day. But I officially had started that label back in 2008, and we ran it for a few years. And then you know different things changed to where I put some records out on some great labels like Black Market Activities and Southern Lord. And then about came this opportunity to be able to do it again um, with Supernova. And so right now we've got the entire catalog up there uh, of the 13 different records. I remastered uh, eight of them or eight or nine of them, almost all of them. It may be even more than that. I feel like a dork for not knowing the exact number, but except for just a few of them that had been made like the newest album. Obviously, why would you remaster that? Um, and you know, and the one right before it, uh, you know, we, all the rest have been remastered and it was a really great thing because, you know, having all these years and all this time to be able to reflect on the music, uh, records that were made at a time when maybe we didn't have as good of recording gear when, when I first started out, um, different things like that, that had an impact on the sound and different things. I wanted to go in and just make these things be the very best that they can be. Now, granted, I didn't want to change them either sonically where you don't even know what album it is anymore. Most of this stuff, because luckily I feel like I did a pretty damn good job on all of them in in the first place. They all sounded pretty rocking anyway, but as a listener experience of being able to hear more details and enjoy them where they have a, slightly heavier sound and thicker sound. Um, I put a lot of time into it over uh, uh, the last like few months, actually like doing all them. And so now we are going to, we've got it all up on Bandcamp right now through both the Supernova Records Bandcamp and the Today's, Today is the Day one. But uh, through our digital distribution deal with the Orchard Sony, they're coming out on, um, on uh, July 16th and so forth. And I'm really thankful that I have that deal. I I signed with Orchard Sony back in 2008 and I've kept that record deal throughout all this time. And so when I wanted to do this, we already had um, a great outlet to be able to do it. Um, Of course, we are working on a new Today is Today album. I, I demoed about seven 
songs that are about 45 minutes in length uh, back just a few months ago with our bass player, Tom Jack. And um, I can't tell you, this is one of those moments when you want to punch the guy doing the podcast because he's not going <laughs> to tell you what is going to happen. But secretly, something's going to happen pretty soon. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you about it soon. And it might have something to do with me coming to see you. And so, but for mm. right this minute, I can't kind of tell you about that. But, uh, but yeah, no, it, it's great. I feel alive. I feel excited out of my mind. It is such a state of freedom to be, you know, with our own record label distributed by Orchard Sony and friggin' you know, being able to do our own thing. I've been working on other musical projects. Um, one thing during the the last like 16 months and so forth is that I've really wanted to make a, um, I guess, you know, I don't want to call it like an outlaw country music album because that makes it sound like it's something else. And that's not what it is. I got fascinated with my roots of when I was growing up of listening to like Hank Williams Sr. and George Jones and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and also like the, you know, folk music and stuff like that. And, and so uh, something that I wanted to do was make, make my Johnny Cash album. That's like with acoustic guitar, kind of like during the American uh, recordings and whatnot. And um, so I've been writing songs and putting that together and so forth. And, um, you know, so if anything, you know, it's like right now life's really cool because with the record label and the team that, you know, I turned around and our head of PR is Dave Brenner, the guy who owns and runs Ear Split with Liz. And, um, you know, he's like one of my closest, very best friends. And Dave, Dave's just like, this madman with like a he I, I call him like the warhead candy of human because he's like you know he's just so fucking intense and insane but like so smart about music and 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 so great to work with and you know I just put together this team of people uh you know and and you know gr- thankfully it all like came together like within not too long like the idea came about last like November and um and then I started talking with our record label at the time, BMG, and I told them, you know, hey, I, you know, I'm, I've got this idea. I want to do it. And we got along so well. And, and I mean, honestly, I love them. They loved me. And, and they were like, you know what, Steve? We think this is a great idea, man. Like, yeah, sure. If you want to do that, like, we're fully behind you 100%. Go, man, go. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, again, more just good fortune of after getting my health back is just, you know, now, now, uh, today is today fans has the whole catalog, a lot of different releases that were unable to be heard because they hadn't been reissued yet. And it's like, you know, so now on July 16th, um, you know, you want to hear Sadness Will Prevail, a double album of uh, 140 minutes of psychotic music or whatever, then please go listen to it. It's going to be right there. Um, you know, the whole thing is right there for the fans. And that's the most important thing to me about it is because I know how deeply a lot of these records mean to the people that follow Today is Today. And they've got their copies. 
And, you know, and, and now for free, they can stream it all day long on Bandcamp or on Spotify or wherever. And, um, you know, so the idea for us in doing the label is it's not really anything. If anything, it's it's the opposite of the corporate idea of doing it. It's it's not about making money again, like my philosophy towards music. It's not about like becoming the biggest record label in the world or filling your pockets with money. What it's about is giving the most direct uh, access to the fans and people that care about today's day, and which is all the more reason why I wanted to prepare all those records for this moment right now. And so now I'm 100% proud of every every song, every album on our catalog, whereas in the past, before some of them were remastered, I'd be like, ah, oh, man, I wish it'd be like this or that. And, you know, but now, you know, when, when you when you have your own rock back, it's like, you know, you can do with it what you want. And and for me, it was just you know, let's let's get this part of our legacy all squared away. And then that way, when people want to enjoy it, they can. And then now as we move into the future, we have an open outlet to be able to make, you know, whatever we want, you know. That's excellent. Yeah, folks, check out the Supernova Records Bandcamp. The releases are going to be up there July 16th, right, Steve? That's correct, yep. So we're going to listen to those on July 16th. And... There's a new Today is the Day record in the works. We don't have all the details yet, but Steve may be coming to see us soon. Wink, yes. wink. And that's <laughs> good news. That is good news. Oh, and I think it is going to blow your mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was me w- whispering to you. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You know, you've you've created a lot of music, whether you've written it or recorded it over the years that myself and Tommy and so many people out there enjoy. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Well, God, you know, I, I couldn't ask for a cooler pair of dudes to hang out with. Seriously. Oh, thanks so much, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. Seriously. No, thank you. It, it wasn't your typical interview. I really, I, I really dug hanging out with you guys. And, um, I, I dig your podcast and I, and I I obviously wish you guys you know just great times and good feelings. Uh, the, uh, uh, life's getting better, man, and uh, and it's gonna it's gonna be great for everybody. There you have it, folks. Steve. Austin, that was an incredible conversation. Just an incredible amount of good stories. The guy has done so much. I, you know, Tommy. Earlier today, I was on the phone with Steve. We were. He was asking about the audio setup, and we were testing things and making sure everything was going to be good. And I could tell just talking to him then, consummate professional, and I just knew he was going to be super personable and super cool. And boy, did he deliver! That was incredible. Dude, great stories, really heartfelt, just and funny to boot, man. Like guys fucking solid all the way around. I'm like just I'm just so I'm so glad there's people out there making music like Steve because there's so many people that are doing like that phony, disingenuous, let's sell records type thing and he's like the complete opposite. Like I'm doing what I want and if you like it, fuck yeah, and if you don't, fuck off. Like <laughs> he's so rad. And, 
You know what I've realized, Tommy? What's that? July 1st is like a recurring crazy date for us. Do you remember what happened last July 1st? Uh, did we have the, uh, moment of that we realized, uh, both of our, uh, departed loved ones, uh, shared a date? Is that what it was? Yes. Yeah. We, Brad Truax from Interpol was on the show. You were talking about your dad. And then I realized that my deceased brother's birthday is also on July 1st. And we had this, oh my God moment. And we did it again today on July 1st with Steve Austin. (laughs) I... I didn't want to get into all that while we were talking to him because there was already so much conversation going on. But can you believe that? No, it's still kind of crazy to me. Uh, I said, how it- could it, how could this happen again on the same date? How could we be recording again on July first? How? The only thing that would make it crazier is if it was only an hour and eight minutes long. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> can you imagine. I w- Shaw would, Mike would be losing his mind right now. <laughs> I would, I would end the podcast. That would be it. It would be done. Can, can we talk about how hot it is and where we're recording? <laughs> oh yeah, Tommy. Tommy had a big reveal uh, as we were setting up this segment. He's like, "Oh, this reminds me of the old school audience of one days." I'm recording without a shirt, like. Tommy and his no shirt, it's, it's just in his blood. He can't get away from it. But listen, to bring you this fine podcast content, we're both sitting in rooms with all the windows shut because we, you know, we can't have outside noise. And I live next to an Airbnb that irritating people always rent out, Ugh. and the whole front of the building opens up. So people open the building. They're flitting in and outside of the house, drinking on the phone, in and out, on the porch, talking. Someone's always playing a piano. It's really annoying. Ugh. And, uh, like, uh, you know, yeah, so... And Tommy is in a basement right now with no <laughs> ventilation, and he has to turn off all the air and humidifiers so we don't have it bleeding through. So we're roasting alive <laughs> to bring you this podcast. But you know what? It's worth it because that was great. 100%. I mean, that, that, that was just great. This was an important episode, I think, because... We addressed a lot of things in the first segment. We addressed a lot of things talking to Steve, and they connected without us even realizing it because we've been recording this over multiple days with multiple changes. And the fact that it's happening on July 1st again, my mind is completely blown. And just with some stuff that's going on right now with me, it's really given me a lot to think about. And I'm getting very emotional even saying this. And uh, let's express some gratitude, Tommy. You know, we're, it's late now, we're recording, but after all of this and the conversation we just had and everything we've done, I'm, I'm very happy. I'm very happy, and I'm very happy that we get to do this because this is rare, you know, this is special. I guess, I mean, I guess anybody can do a podcast, and most people do, but I don't know, I'm, I'm just happy that we get to do this podcast is the point I'm trying to make. I think more importantly, I, I, I really like that. And I think Steve kind of nailed it where he was like, I like the fact that this wasn't an interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is, we've always gone on the fact of like, we love to ask questions when they're appropriate or when they, they see, you know, they're, they're fitting. But there's also times where it's like, just, there's a lot of times where I have, I just want to hear about this person. I want to hear them talk. I want to hear what their life was like. And I want to hear them tell stories. And I, I think, I'm so grateful that something that started 
as kind of just like a a blurb of like let's do this and is now kind of grown into something that we both take really seriously and we both feel lucky to be a part of we get to talk to people that are amazing artists and musicians and we get to have a real conversation with them not some fucking like contrived okay we're on question number 11 now let's go to the catalog like no like like <laughs> there is no catalog yeah like uh no it's it, like steve was saying like he can only write what he knows you know he he does like what's inside of him is what comes out i can't i can't be disingenuous we ask about what we're interested in that's it yeah and i think you know that conversation went from talking about different types of home heating equipment to uh touring uh to you know like the the frailty of life um and then as it always does cycles back to anal cunt you know (laughs) (laughs) it all circles back to it's either anal cunt or corn (laughs) that's what it always comes back to (laughs) it's a beautiful thing that movie that steve referenced captain fantastic Folks, if you've never seen it, watch it. It is an absolute tearjerker, heartwarming, one of the best movies I've ever seen. And uh, Viggo Mortensen is the lead in it. He's one of my favorite actors. Check it out. There's I've a free ne- plug for the movie. I've never seen it, and I can't wait to watch it now. And I love uh, Viggo. What is his name? Viggo Mortensen? Yeah. I always make it. I always mess it up because uh, there's an "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" episode where they mess it. They butcher his name the whole time, and I, <laughs> I, it, I want to call him Vigio Morkenstein or something. I don't know. It's just terrible. Well, listen, Tommy and I have to retreat to the comfort of our air conditioners. <laughs> yes, but listen, we're back with a new episode next week. We're gonna be here no matter what. That's it. We're here. Like it or not, we are here. Tommy, I'm not going to ask you for any inspiring closing words because we've already done so much discovery in this episode. I feel it would be too much Yeah, if we laid on even more. Yeah, it's just next week, neither rain nor sleet nor heat nor gloom of night will come back. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the fucking post office thing is. Isn't that the postman's creed? <laughs> yeah, I forget what it is, but my my both my in-laws are formal uh postal workers and they they have a little plaque in their house that i think it's neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor hail we're gonna get you your fucking mail (laughs) i'm positive it's not that but that would that would make a fucking great motto they should start putting that on the side of the trucks that's what it should be anyway (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks everybody for listening and until next time